Pray with me. Almighty, eternal God, I beg of you this morning that we would see in a powerful way that the words that we just heard are not fun, cute stories. that are fun to, to read and, and look at and at the end of the day hold no meaning. But God, I beg you today that we would see, God, that the very words that we look at, the very words that we read, the very words that we hear are eternal truth of your eternal gospel. God, aimed at our hearts, as you call us into relationship with you. And so God, I pray today that we would see that. God, that we would be engaged by yourself. And God, that we would never be the same. Have your way, I beg of you. It's in your beautiful name I pray, amen. Hey, why don't you grab your Bible and turn to Galatians. Uh, my name is Dave, one of the pastors here. Some of you might not know me. Um, and we are in the midst of the book of Galatians. And so, uh, I don't know if you just realized it. Let me kind of tell you what you just saw up there on the screen. Um, we're going to talk today about how a Pharisee once persecuted Christ... And then that same Pharisee was then pursued by Christ, and then that same Pharisee was then rescued by Christ. We're going to look at the weight of the author of this book, of Galatians, of who he was, the story of his life, the story of what God did in his life. Because we read this and we're like, oh, this is a pretty good guy, man. He loves Jesus, and he's nothing like me. But I hope, I hope to show you who this Paul was, Saul guy, really was at the core of his being. And then maybe we can get a glimpse of how powerful the gospel is. Um, I remember vividly a time when I was in college, uh, one of my, my roommates, his name... It was Cody, one of the most amazing men of God I've ever met, uh, one of the most amazing guys who challenged me daily in what it meant to follow Christ, and one of the f- most hilarious guys with that. Some of you know him. Um, but I remember specifically there was one, one uh, winter we'd come back from Christmas break, and Cody wasn't there, and we'd started classes, and um, he'd kind of been gone for a couple of days, and we we're trying to figure out, okay, where, where's Cody? What's, what's going on? He should be back. Um, and come to find out, uh, there'd been a tragedy in his family. And just to kind of back up a little bit, his, his uncle, on a semi-regular basis, would just show up in our apartment and just hang out with us. This dude was like 50. 60. I mean, it was awesome. I was like, well, this dude wanted to just hang out with a bunch of, you know, 20-year-olds. 
um, at college, and uh, this guy was, uh, was, was really funny. Uh, he would call up on the phone and just like, you'd answer the phone, and he'd like have to do this funny voice and like tell you jokes, and like, it was, he, was, he was just a hilarious guy, um, and he would just stop in from time to time, random times, like Cody'd be like, hey, my uncle's here, he's spending the night. And initially, we were like, all right, and then we're like, hey, when's your uncle coming again? That guy's pretty cool. Um, and so, uh, this tragedy in his family was connected to his uncle. Uh, his uncle, uh, during the time we had been on Christmas break, was murdered. But what, what's even more tragic about it is that it wasn't, um, it was a brutal murder. Uh, in fact, someone had taken a baseball bat and had beat him in the head with it and killed him. And I remember Man, as if it was like yesterday, sitting in our living room, and we're just hugging Cody when he had come back, and we're just loving on him and praying over him, and he is just weeping like you've never seen a man weep before. And in the middle of praying, he, he stops us. And we go, we're just like, man, how, how are you doing? And I'll never forget the next words that came out of his mouth. He goes, talking about the murderer, he said, man, I just want this guy to come to know Christ. I do not want him to spend an eternity in hell. What? That just struck me. I'll never forget that because our tendency is what? God damn him in hell. He took my uncle. He deserves Hell. But what's amazing about that is Cody had grasped the grace of God in such a way that when you freely receive the grace of God, you freely give. When you, when you truly understand that your sin before God is more heinous than any human sin against you, you say, God, save them. I'll come back to that story in a little bit. Um, last week, we talked through the first part of Galatians, and, and Paul is writing Galatians this, to uh, several churches. The churches have been around for maybe two years, and he's going to warn them about something, and something we talked about uh, last week about drifting. Um, and what I mean by drifting is this potential to, to be here where, exactly where God wants you and over time and over neglect, you begin to, to slowly move away from God and slowly move away from God and slowly move away from God. I talked about it. people don't fall away from God like you fall off a cliff, right? Remember me saying that? People walk away from God one step at a time. This is this idea of drifting. And Paul comes to these churches and he's like, you're beginning to drift to something that's false. A gospel that is not centered on me, Christ, but a gospel that is centered on you and who you are and what you are able to do or not able to do. And so Paul is coming to them and saying, wait a second, the gospel isn't rooted in your performance. How often you go to the synagogue, how often you go to church. It's not rooted in that. It's rooted in my acceptance based on the death that I made on the cross. 
Okay, glance down at verse 10. We read this last week. We'll look at it briefly. It says, For, I'm now, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So here's what, here's what Paul's getting at. Uh, last week we focused on that word still. Remember that? Okay, so he goes, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And what did we say last week? This is important that we get this so that we know where we're going. He, we use the word still and we focus on that word to say this. That when you come to Christ, there are some things that you no longer do. Okay, but, but not only that, there's also things that you do, but, but this phrase, if I were still trying to please man, it, it means this, that, that when you're saved by the grace of God, you're freed up to no longer live for the, for the pleasure and the recognition of man and how they view you, but you're freed up to then pursue God and live for God. Paul's like, if I'm still struggling, if I'm still trying to please man, I'm not, I'm not living for Christ. And so he's, he's trying to, to bring them back to this reality of what does it mean to be absolutely centered to, on the Lord? Now here's the test that I gave us to figure out where you fall. Remember this? I call it the centrality test. Okay? And the question is this. may remember it? Whom do you serve? Okay? Whom do you serve? That, that says everything about, are you pleasing man or are you pleasing God? What are you serving in your life? Now, glance down at verse 11. Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so Paul here is trying to show his apostolic authority. Um, when you go to somebody and you are really harsh with them, it's pretty good if you, if you come on some grounds that you have some reason to do that, right? Um, that you have some authority. So what Paul's doing is he's trying to show them, I'm not just some bro that's giving you some advice. Like, I've been divinely appointed and divinely sent by God to bring a message to you, and this is the message. You're drifting. You are drifting away from the truth of who Christ is. And so he sets up this idea of, of what it means to be an apostle. Now, let me just go over this real quick. An apostle. Let's talk about what an apostle is. An apostle um, in, in biblical times was somebody who walked. There were 12 of them. Well, 13. Um, they walked closely with Christ. Okay? Paul is identified later on by Christ as one of his apostles. Okay? Here's a, uh, some good information about an apostle. They extend the gospel. They, they move forward the gospel as, as one who is sent by God. They seek to bring faith from one context to another so where they might cultivate aspects of faith here. They don't just stay here. They'll go and try to move it over here and move it over here and move it over. It's, it's basically the idea of church planting. Okay, <clears throat> excuse me, so that they then can transmit faith from, faith from one generation to another. So that at the end of a generation, it doesn't die, but it's carried on continually. Okay, they, they think future. Hey, where are we going? What's happening? They bridge barriers. So where are areas where 
the gospel might not be advanced, whether it's some type of reconciliation that needs to happen, and they try to bridge those barriers, okay? They bring the gospel into new context. They develop leaders. They network with people, okay? Um, that's, that's apostleship, what it means to be an apostle. Now, if you look in this passage that we just read, Paul uses an interesting phrase. He said, this gospel is not man's gospel. Um, atheists will, will hold to this claim that God is a man-made concept, right? Man made him up. He doesn't really exist. Well, there's a new atheism out within our culture that, that's even going to the extent that's saying, if you believe in God, you are disgraced to society and should not be tolerated. As if that's civil, right? Um, and so what, what, what Paul starts out to say is, this gospel that he's about ready to show you with his very life, it's not man's gospel. And he's going to prove it to us by telling us the story of what God did in his life. But he says, it's not man's gospel. It's not some, it's the very thing I prayed when I started. It's not just some cute story about some, you know, oh God loves us so much and so he, you know, got a boo-boo for us so that we could, uh, you know, not get one and like, that's really cool. Let's tell our kids, you know, like, no, this is an eternal gospel message that transcends all of time and will live on forever. We've got to be careful not to dumb down what we're doing and what we're talking about. I think you'll get it a little more clearly when we get into to who Paul is. Um, look, at, uh, look at verse 11. For I would have you know. Have you ever had someone come up to you and try to tell you something they thought you didn't know all the while? You're like, dude, I know this. Like, pick a new topic. You've told me this 25,000 times probably like, you know, how our kids feel, parents. Um, pick, a, pick something new to tell me. Um, but the problem is, why is Paul saying, I would have you know? Why do you think? Because there's something within them that shows you must not know this very well, because if you knew this well, you'd probably be living a little different. Right? Parents? Okay, um... And so he's like, I would have you know this. Even though I know you've heard this and I know you know this, you don't truly know it. You know it here, but it hasn't trickled into your heart. Okay, so here's where we're going. Paul is going to use what I believe is the greatest apolog- one of the greatest apologetics we have as believers. That, that is the hardest to refute, and it's this. Your testimony. Because at the end of the day, can I say, no, that really didn't happen with you. No, no, your story, yeah, what, what, ha- what you say happened, no, there's no way it happened. Well, I can say that. But at the end of the day, if that's what God did in your life, <laughs> that's what God did. So Paul's about ready to lay out, here's what happened with me. He's going to use one of the greatest apologetic tools that I believe that we have, that if we would just live out our testimonies and be free to share our testimonies, here's, what, here's who God is in my life. It's one of the greatest evangelistic tools that we have. Now, um, let's look at this idea of a, a Pharisee persecuting Christ. Okay, verse 13. For I would have you know, or I'm sorry, for you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. 
And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Okay, the very first thing that we looked at um, before I even came up here was, was what? Who can tell me? What was that first text that was read to you? Yes. The stoning of Stephen. Okay. And at the very end of it, what, no one's going to remember. Well, I shouldn't say that. Does anyone remember what the last phrase of that was? At the very end of the stoning of Stephen, it said what? And Saul, who is Paul, approved of his execution. Okay, so here's what we're getting at. This, this Pharisee, this religious nutcase, um, basically is killing, more or less, God's people. The, the, one of the first ones, Stephen, is martyred. Not necessarily at the hands of Saul, but it says he approved of his execution as if he ordered it. Now, he wasn't the one that threw the stones, but he's the one who ordered it to happen. Now, here's some of the words that the Bible uses to describe Paul. Paul, Saul, synonymous. Saul is pre-conversion. Paul is post-conversion. He's an enthusiast. He's a zealot, exceedingly mad, breathing murderous threats. He's a persecutor of the church. Here's the thing. Paul, or Saul, sought to destroy everything that the cross meant. Okay? That's a big deal. Because it's not just like God is just this another one of us. Like he's the ultimate creator, the ultimate authority. And, and Saul comes along and he's like, I want to destroy the reality of what the Son of God was doing. Okay? Maybe, maybe this would be helpful. Uh, if we understood some of the tenets of Judaism, maybe that would help us. Okay? Let me give you a few things. Here we go. Um, in, in, in the midst of Judaism, they're strictly monotheistic, which means they believe in one God, Yahweh, okay, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, okay? We would say we're monotheistic as well. However, we would, we would say that, that yes, there is one God, but he's representative in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Judaism denies a Trinitarian view of God, okay, which is huge, okay? On top of that, because they deny a Trinitarian view of God, they deny the deity of Christ, okay, which goes hand in hand with the virgin birth, okay, the resurrection of Christ. So, so Jesus wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't divine. More or less, he was a false prophet, okay, and he really wasn't coming again, so there really isn't a second coming, okay? Um, now, that's really important to understand because Here's where I struggled. Let me just tell you this. I honestly struggled with this until last night. Okay? Just so you can, maybe that just gives you a glimpse into how the Lord works. Okay? Seriously, late last night, the Lord revealed what I'm about to tell you, tell you to me. Okay? Um, I was nervous all week about how to even handle this because I wasn't quite sure how to answer this question in my head. And God answered my prayer. Okay? Um, because in my own mind, now most of you probably had this down and you're like, I knew that. You could have just asked me. Um, okay, well, send me a, you know, a Facebook message and uh, no, don't confront me over uh, social media. Anyway, um, so here, here's the situation. I always thought it was weird 
that, you know in Philippians 3 where Paul's kind of boasting about all that he's done for righteousness sake, and he's like, I was a persecutor of the church and of the tribe of Benjamin and da-da-da-da, and like, he was just naming all these great things that he did, and I'm like, how can anyone who persecutes Christians have any grounds to boast? Like, how is that considered righteous? Well, for the Jews, it is. Okay, let me, let me explain why. Because, think about it. Judaism would not hold to the idea that Jesus is divine. Okay, so because Judaism is so law-driven, Old Testament-driven, Torah-driven, okay, and they believe that in seeking to keep the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, okay, in seeking to keep the law that's within there, I can be right with God. So it's this moralistic pursuit. Okay? And then Christians, on the other hand, are saying, no, wait. Wait a second. It's not a, it's not a moralistic pursuit. It's by, by faith through the work of Christ on the cross that then produces in you attitudes and actions and behaviors that will show you to be moral. Okay? Now, here's, here's the problem with that. Salvation by faith in Christ, that idea is a direct threat against Paul's belief of following the law. Okay? So everything within a Jew was, we got to destroy that. Jesus isn't the Son of God. He did not die on a cross so that, that I might be saved. He's a false prophet. Okay, so, so they denied this re- idea of the resurrection of Christ, okay? And, and what they were really wanting to get at is Christianity is a threat to our belief. Therefore, we must destroy it. So when Paul says, as for zeal, a persecutor of the church, you know what he means? He's like, the church was a direct threat against my beliefs I'm going to destroy it. In the same way that for us, we would say um, wolves within the church, wolves, not like a real wolf, but like a, someone who wants to destroy the gospel within the church, we would say, shoot them. Get them out. They're going to destroy the church. Get them out. Paul says Christianity is a direct threat against my beliefs. Now, I know you knew that, and you should have told me that, because um, The Lord had to work that through me. This is why Stephen was martyred. Do you know that? You you take time to read Acts 7. This is why he was martyred. Because he said, he he talked about the the fathers of the Old Testament being blasphemous and, and, and being wicked. That they weren't righteous. And you you take a look at Acts 7 and you see this is the very reason why Stephen was killed. Now, Check this quote out. This is uh, incredibly profound. This is exactly what I've been saying. Paul was no second-rate thug or mafioso bent on vandalism and violence for its own sake. There is no evidence that he carried out his work with a guilty conscience, burdened by self-doubt or hindered by second thoughts. Wouldn't you think that? If you're persecuting Christians, wouldn't you turn around and be like, I really shouldn't be doing this. No. He thought he was absolutely right in it in the same way that within the Christian church we would say we're absolutely right to shoot a wolf because they're going to destroy the church. 
He was very happy, a very happy and successful Jew who could put on his resume, as he later constructed it for the Philippians, his persecution of the church alongside his other virtues and achievements, his circumcision, his rooted in the tribe of Benjamin, his membership in the Pharisaic party, his blameless devotion to the law. Don't get caught up in trying to understand all those if those are way over your head. Okay, simply put, he followed the law to a T. And those were all the benchmarks of a great Jew. Simply put. Continue on. All of these, including the persecutions, he counted as prophet before he met Christ. Thus, all the greater his shame and remorse when he realized that in seeking to please God, he had actually been striving against God. In aiming for the best, he had sunk to the worst. Those things he had called profit, he now realized were loss, refuse, trash, human excrement, fit fit only to be hurled onto the dung heap of his life. Wow. Now, this is why I would propose to you that a religious person, a good person, Pharisee kid, adult, whoever, is further from the kingdom than the worst pagan. Why? Because they think they got it all together. A pagan? Someone who outright just does wicked and knows they do it? They're honest. They're like, yeah, I don't follow God, I'm wicked. I'm sinful. In fact, I do this, and I do this, and I... No. Okay, but a Pharisee? A a righteous, devout, church-going person? Man, they can list for you all the good they're doing. Man, I'm I'm doing this. I read my Bible, you know, at least like once a month, right? Um, And I go to church, you know, at least it's open, you know, three times a week. I'm in there at least two. Um, And I don't cuss, and I don't do this, and and they're listing it off. And so now all of a sudden they're like, I'm pretty good. When in reality, the Bible says that your righteousness is as filthy rags. So that's why there's so much great danger for a person like Saul And I hope you're beginning to see how magnificent the saving work of a guy like him is. Okay? Because he was an enemy of the cross. He wrote it later on in Philippians like this. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. Now here's the thing. Paul, he thought he was doing everything right. Many pagan sinners, they'll probably tell you, I know what I'm doing isn't right. But they'll just keep doing it. But the religious, they they think they're on the right path. They think what they're doing is the right thing to do. But in reality, what, what they're living for isn't God. They're living for their own appetites in thinking that that's the pursuit that God has for them. 
all the while patting themselves on the back, I'm such a good follower of God. Missing it all the while. Enemies of the cross. This is why in Proverbs, it says there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to destruction. Does that scare anybody in here? So for all of us in here that we're like, I'm, I'm headed in the right direction. I feel like I'm on the right path. I feel like I'm doing what God wants me to do. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to destruction. So it could be true in this very moment that the way you are headed, the way I am headed in this moment, it seems right to me, but it's going to lead to my own destruction. What should that do for us? Like, what do you, what do, you do with that? I don't know about you, but that gets me on my face to say, God, I want to go your way. Because it's pretty clear that if I go my way, I'm going to miss it. And I'm going to die brutally. Guys, this is why we can't just read over the Bible and check it off. Because there's verses in it like this that say there's a way that seems right to you and some of you are on that path and it's leading to your condemnation in hell. I hope you don't just jump to the next verse as if you didn't see verse 25 and you just jumped to verse 26 because the Proverbs, they're so ADD and so we just, we don't know what to do with it so we just skim through it really fast, really fast and we miss the fact that it's saying be careful. There's an enemy that is alive and well and crafty and wants to destroy you. Be careful. You might think you're headed in the right path. Watch out. This is why it's so paramount that we run hard after the Lord and we beg that he show us and we live with people that can say, hey, I'm not sure where you're going here. You need to be careful here. That's why Christian community, gospel-centered community, is huge because it's not just your perspective on life or even your perspective on the Bible. One of the greatest pieces of advice I've ever received is to think out loud. Do you guys like to think? Like to think about anything, but in particular the things of God? If you just keep it in here, how do you know if you're right? You could even read the Word. There's been brilliant people that have read the Word wrong. When you think out loud and you communicate out loud, what happens? People press you on it. It makes you really think through, well, why do I believe that? I don't know, because that's what my grandma taught me 45 years ago. That's just what you believe, right? No. So here's my question for you. Are you on a path of persecuting Christ? Seeking your own good moral behavior modification. And really what you're doing is you're unintentionally denying the work of Christ on the cross. Now some of you maybe intentionally are, but some of you, it's more unintentional and you're just kind of doing the whole moralistic pursuit of God. And I just want to warn you, you are negating Christ. 
Is that you? You need to ask that. You need to ask the Lord that. You need to ask somebody next to you that loves you that question. But here's the deal. This Pharisee that persecuted Christ, here's what's amazing. God pursued him. That's like following your hitman. Is it not? Christ pursues Saul. Anybody see my hitman? I'm looking for him. Why? Oh, I don't know. I thought maybe I'd go out to lunch. That's what he's doing. He, he pursues the one who's trying to destroy him. Verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, he's on the road to Damascus, okay, headed to his next victim. And the power of God shines down upon him and brings him to his face and says, why are you persecuting me? It wasn't so much a rebuke as much as I believe it was an invitation. It was a calling. I'm pursuing you. Here's what blows me away. If you think you understand the grace of God, try to get it in this reality. How extravagant the grace of God to extend it to the very person that's against you. How extravagant the love of God that even in the midst of you trying to destroy me, I'm going to love the mess out of you. Because I want you to know me and I want you to love me. And by me loving you and your wickedness, you'll begin to see the grace of God and turn from your sin into relationship with Christ. But then the most amazing part happens. There's some people that God calls them. God pursues them. And then what does He do? He rescues them. Look at 16. I'm going to read 15 again. But when he who set me apart before I was born, that's election right there, who, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. God was pleased to reveal the work of Christ to this heinous, wicked Pharisee. It pleased, it pleased the Father to reveal His Son. Here's what's amazing about that. In the midst of crying with my roommate Cody, when he said, I want that murderer to come to know the saving work of Christ, there was hope. It, it was almost as if a smile came to his face because he realized that the brokenness of that situation could be redeemed by the gospel. By the blood of Christ. And here's the deal. Because Cody had so truly and freely understood the depths of God's grace, 
how could he not extend it? Because he knew that he was a murderer of God, a hater of God, and God redeemed him. So how can we turn around and say, go to hell, you killed my friend. No, come to know Jesus, because I once was a murderer. It's profound. It's unbelievably profound. Because here's what happens when you look at 16. Do you see the words in order that? Anytime you see the words in order that in your Bible, you should mark them. You know what I do? I draw an arrow over the top of it. And that means purpose. In order that. So Paul, or Paul writes and he says that it pleased the Father to reveal his Son to me. Why? So that I can experience heaven forever. Is that what it says? If you have like the message or the um, word on the street or um, I don't know what it says. I didn't read those versions. Um, the ESV, although, says uh, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So here's the deal. When you truly grasp the gospel, it puts you on the team where you live out mission personally with people. Incarnational mission rather than personal salvation. Here's what I mean. Let me explain that. What I mean by incarnational mission, I mean this. That you live with people that need to know Jesus rather than just living free from it or even maybe living with them but just being so sold on. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I mean, if you don't want to, that's just your choice. Like, okay. No, God's like, I set you free to be a light and a voice to those that are on their way to an eternity under God's wrath. Look at verse 17. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Acts chapter 9 verse 20 actually says this. Right after Paul's conversion, Saul's conversion, right after it, here's what it says. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. How unbelievable is that? Did we not just say that Judaism denies the divinity of Christ? And Paul's converted. He experiences this eternal God and his son. And he says, truly, he is And maybe you're not sure of that today. Here's one thing I can tell you. If you ask God to reveal it to you, do you think he is able to do that? Do you think he is able to do that? 
Do you think God's up in heaven like, man, I don't know. God pursued his enemy. And God is pursuing you. And he wants you to see the weight of this. He, he wants you to see that not only are you saved from the weight of sin, but you're saved to the reality of your relationship with God and your call to live out your faith in a lost and dying culture where people are on their way to an eternity in hell. Paul lived radical, so radical that he was standing before, he was standing on trial before a king named King Agrippa. You can go to it. Uh, I was going to, but, but I don't want to take the time. In Acts 26, you can go there and you can read it. But Paul, one of the things that Paul says to this king is he, he tries to evangelize to this king, but he says, God has sent me to open blind eyes. Why? Because Paul's eyes had been opened. People who don't come to Christ, here's the deal. Their eyes are closed, not physically, but spiritually. They cannot understand the things of God. Apart from God's grace, activity, work in opening up their eyes. And here's what's amazing. Paul says in Acts 26, verse 17 and 18, that it's our job to go and open blind eyes. But you know what? You can't open any blind eyes. Here's what's amazing. God uses us living out the gospel on mission to bring people to the place where their eyes are open to see the beauty of Jesus. Paul lived a radical life. We're called to do the same. Watch this video.
of following Christ will absolutely cost you your life. You need to know that. Um, But it's the most joyful pursuit because what the world wants you to see and even some Christians want you to see is that that God just wants you to, you know, have a nice life. And God wants you to have, you know, a good amount of money. And God wants you to just have really good friends. And God wants you to drive a really nice car and live in a really nice house. And God wants to do all these good things for you. And if you come to Him, that's what will happen. And I'm here to tell you is that, that God's definition of your safety and God's definition of your satisfaction and God's definition of your provision looks a whole lot different than the way America defines those terms. A whole lot different. And the very thing that he did with, with Saul when he, con- when he transformed him into Paul is he called him to a mission that cost him his very life. And when Paul grasped the reality of what the gospel meant, he said, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Because he realized that while the gospel includes me, while the gospel includes you if you were a child of God, or if you would surrender your life to Christ today, while it includes you, it doesn't major on you, but you are enlisted into the mission of God to be used to advance the cause of Christ for His name and His fame, not yours. God's love is available today. He's calling you to Him. And so I just want to ask this question and then I'll be done. Is He pursuing you? And what are you doing about it? I don't care if you've known Jesus all your life. I don't. God wants to pursue you today, and He is. And the question is, is will you respond? Will you repent? Will you turn to Him in faith? You need the gospel. I don't care who you are in here. You need the gospel. You need to know the resurrected power of Christ in your life for the forgiveness of your sins every single day day of your life. And the most amazing thing is that some of you are sitting in here and you've never experienced that. And today, we want you to experience that. We want you to give your life to Christ today and begin to have a purpose that is so much bigger than you. Let's pray. God, pursue us right now. Lead us to your almighty loving arms. God, where we are hurting, where we are walking in sin, where we are doubting, God, in the same way that you rescued Saul, would you rescue us God, bring your saving work in our midst. In Christ's name, amen.